Um, so I am living and working in Thailand. I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between Bangkok and Chiang Mai. Um, and I've been focusing my work on the area of anti-human trafficking for the last um, seven, eight years. Um, specifically, my role has been um, as the Thailand ambassador for Freedom Collaborative, <clears throat> which is a global online platform um, to resource and equip and connect the anti-trafficking community across the globe. And so my role encompasses um, anti-trafficking stakeholders here in Thailand, including NGO practitioners, um, activists, academics, um, government agencies. And then I've also been working with an organization called Envader, which is um, bringing prosecutions and convictions to um, offenders of human trafficking in order to increase um, prosecutions and convictions in um, in anti-trafficking, but also to um, do investigations, professional investigations into cases of trafficking here in Thailand. When you hear the term ethical storytelling, what is what comes to mind? That's a great question, Heidi. So with ethical storytelling, this is something that uh, that Rachel Goebel and I actually have been talking about for the last year or so um, around just this idea of ethical storytelling, specifically in my context in anti-human trafficking work. So from the last probably 15 years here in this in the anti-trafficking sector, we've we've had a lot of lessons learned. And essentially the anti-trafficking community is about 10 to 15 years old so far. And so if you think about that in terms of kind of our our kind of growth and lessons learned, we're, we're sort of in these teenage years, right? We're in these developmental mm-hmm. years as a sector globally. And mm-hmm. I think we have a lot to learn in this space because if we look backwards 15 years and we look at the lessons learned from our history, there's a lot that we can kind of evaluate and say, how as a sector have we started to tell stories and how have we use stories within communications um, about the work that we do. And so I think with ethical storytelling, this is a concept that I know myself and some peers and colleagues of mine have been discussing in terms of how does ethical storytelling fit um, in within the sector of anti-human trafficking work, at least in, in my kind of sector and expertise in anti-trafficking, and how do we kind of begin as a sector to evaluate ourselves in the way that we tell stories and if we look back 15 years in terms of the way that organizations have kind of communicated, I think it's important for us to evaluate kind of our our the way that we the way that we like communicate in terms of the the sort of community that we're sort of a part of yeah of of talking about. Why do you think story has played a part in kind of this growth phase of the anti-trafficking sector? That's a really good question. I think for us, um, as an anti-trafficking sector, so much of what we do has to do with uh, people, right? And so this whole kind of space of um, victims and survivors and a lot of a lot of organizations are involved kind of in intervention work. And so you have this kind of um, narrative of um, kind of this, I'm going to say, like, put it out there, like, savior complex, um, white savior complex, dare I say it. And then this narrative of like victims and, and, and people who need to be quote unquote rescued. Um, 
And I think you can look at that across the board, not only in sex trafficking, but also in labor trafficking as well. Um, and I think as a sector, we have over the last 15 some years, we've we've created this kind of sensationalism in talking about this issue. It's incredibly easy to oversimplify and over sensational sensationalize the issue of of trafficking because it because it does evolve around people and these narratives that I think um, in in the West especially we we like to have these kind of black and white boxes that we put um, ourselves into and and I think we also like to have silver bullet answers to um, to solving problems mm-hmm. and so within storytelling and anti-trafficking I think it's become really easy for organizations um, to tell a a kind of oversimplified story of um, the way in which we not only address this issue, but the way in which trafficking um, kind of has, yeah, the anti-trafficking sector has, has come into to being in the last sort of decade. And so I think as organizations, we, we really need to sort of self, self sort of evaluate and, and critically look at the way in which we've kind of shaped as a sector, um, yeah, some of these, some of these issues. Yeah, you've dig- you've dug a little bit into you know this motivation uh, aspect. Sure. And what, what do you think really lies behind that motivation, and why is sure. sensationalism kind of yeah. the this key answer to addressing such a horrific issue? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: is that so so much of at least in the NGO space in anti-trafficking, we're driven by donor dollars. And we're driven by this need to to sell a story to people who ultimately want to fund us. This is getting really kind of like nitty gritty, all kind of, you know, we're, we're going to take off all of the different sort of layers right here and just say it comes down to money. Hmm. It comes down to um, to us needing to to communicate <clears throat> to communicate something that a, a topic that is incredibly nuanced, incredibly multi-layered, incredibly complex and we as NGOs have this need to communicate these stories simply to donors. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think the issue is that um, that those of us that that find ourselves in these positions, um, it's it's easy for us to kind of say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna tell these stories that are that are simplified, and and we're gonna kind of melt it down into something that's kind of digestible. But what happens when we, when we oversimplify this issue is that we end up um, doing a, a disservice, I think, to, to the, the survivors that we're actually ultimately trying to assist. Mm-hmm. Um, the extreme version is that we overshare and that we over-sensationalize. And I think what happens then is that we actually um, move into a space of re-victimization of the survivors that were assisting, um, and ultimately that's re that's re exploitation. Is when the anti trafficking sector tells stories that are so sensational, <clears throat> or if we pick the most sensational stories, right, as kind of our as our primary examples for for telling stories to our donors. I believe that's re exploitation. Um, no one deserves to have their horrific experiences kind of plastered out into you know sort of hyperspace in, in, in the internet and, and in the world that we live in right now, you, at the click of a button, someone's story can go viral. And so 
I think we have a responsibility and a duty as individuals that work for NGOs to protect um, the rights of, of the survivors that we're working with. Yeah. So I would say on that, actually, in terms of kind of practical resource, mm -hmm. um, the Freedom Collaborative, which is this network that I've been working on for the last couple of years, we we actually about a year ago had um, a discussion topic where we invited the anti-trafficking community to contribute comments and thoughts on this particular issue of the use of victims' stories and also the use of survivors' Um, images, not only survivors' images in media and communications, but just images in general of people. Hmm. And what we found was we had about 40 to 50 respondents from across the globe gave input into this, this conversation online. And what we did from that was we created a guideline, a concept note that was uh, developed by Anjana um, Cochetta actually who's the head of legal for Liberty Asia. And essentially from this discussion topic, we inputted best practice guidelines for the use of images of people in storytelling within anti-trafficking. And that was an incredibly uh, kind of interesting sort of exercise for us to go through. Anjana really did a great job inputting the legal input and legal frameworks of what are the sort of legal frameworks across the world that encompass uh, use of images of, of faces in communications and, and marketing. Mm. Um, and so that resource is available publicly on the Freedom Collaborative. That's amazing. And we'll be sure to add that to the website too with resources that are available to people out there for finding this um, work and analyzing it. I think that brings up an interesting question though of what is the relationship between fundraising and storytelling and particular in what you've observed in Thailand and like how how do you have a healthy relationship in that or should they be exclusive from each other? Sure. That's a really important question. And I think kind of what I was touching on earlier, we as NGOs that are working in this space really do have an obligation and I think a, a duty to, to do this work well and, and to, to do communications and marketing with integrity Um and, and, and ultimately to, to respect the dignity of, of those that we're working with. And so I think that we have um, an obligation as a community to get really creative. Hmm. So this is something that I feel like as a sector, we, we really need to start having this conversation. I think this is part of what ethical storytelling is in terms of even this, this space um, that Rachel, you and, and Heidi are, are creating and that we're creating as a community is, is how do we get creative? right, as mm -hmm. a sector, not only in the anti-trafficking space, but I would say this encompasses child protection and it encompasses forced labor and, and people working on issues of, of refugees and asylum seekers as well. Um, how do we get creative in terms of those of us that I think oftentimes hold the kind of marketing and calm space as, as NGOs that are doing some of the direct communications with our donors, um, some of our kind of marketing online, some of our sort of newsletters and reporting that we're doing for donors in general, how do we get creative as a community and start to tell stories that reflect the integrity for our sector, but also the dignity of the survivors that we're working with? I think that this is a conversation that needs to evolve in terms of what does that look like? What does it look like for us to get creative? How can we brainstorm to move away from kind of these ultra sensational stories and these kind of black and white silver bullet answers 
Um, and how do we as a community start to, to really engage and dig deeper to do this, to do this work well for the next 15, 20 years? Mm-hmm. So with that, I mean, we talk about motivation and a lot of it you mentioned is in this need for black and white answers, which is a lot of what motivates donors, right? They want to feel like and they're presented with an issue and an issue has an answer. And how, sure. how or what is the role that nonprofits have, have to play in shifting what donors and viewers expect from, sure. from stories? So here's the thing is I, I feel like, Heidi, that's such an important question because I feel like so often with, with when we, with communicating with donors, right? Cause we, ultimately I think this really boils down to NGOs need for, for fundraising. Right. And I think there's something really special that happens when NGOs get real and get honest with their donor base and start to, to kind of unpack the layers and nuance within their work. Um, I would say from, from my own experience in terms of communicating with some sort of major donor partners that I've worked with in the past, when I've, when I've opened up around the layers of complexity and opened up around some, I would say of the kind of, what am I saying? Essentially being honest and transparent I think brings about a, a kind of trans, a transparency brings about a sense of, of honesty. And I think there's a trust that's built amongst the NGO and a donor when you can say, Hey, you funded this project and these things went wrong and these things went pretty okay. Mm-hmm. These things maybe went well. Right. And you can say, you know, here's, here's the good, the bad, the ugly. And we're going to be honest with you about that and transparent. I think that there is a trust that's built that is is something that I think as NGOs, we have to be willing to put ourselves into those spaces and to say, mm-hmm. you know what, we're not going to just tell our donors the flashy stories. We're not going to tell our donors the, um, the kind of just the highlights and the success stories, but we're going to have an honest conversation and say, here's the things that went wrong, you know, and, and then here's our plan for, for sort of maybe addressing those things in the future. But I think there is, I think, an, initially a need for, for honesty in, in terms of just kind of this dialogue between donors and, and NGOs on the ground. I think especially in anti-trafficking, because, again, like we were just saying, it's, it's just all, it's all too easy to tell those, those really oversimplified stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what makes specifically the anti-trafficking sector prone to, to over sensationalization because this issue is, it's this hotbed for, um, for, for oversimplification. And again, because it goes back down, it comes down to to humans and, and these kind of narratives of, you know, the, the kind of victim versus the survivor and the rescuer versus the, you know, the, and the hero complex and, and all of that. I think that we're just sort of creating these spaces that, um, we need to be telling honest stories. Hmm. How would you define an honest story? That's a great question, Heidi. Let me. All just my questions are great. Me. Apparently, they're just so <laughs> great. Yeah. Very good at questions. <laughs> That's a really. I think. I think that comes down to a case by case 
sort of basis in terms of, in terms of, I think for like all of us involved in, in the NGS space have to, to go through um, monitoring and reporting for our donors in some regard, whether that's filling out donor reports and grant reports, or whether that's speaking to our donors in public, in public kind of venues and public speaking. And I think that oftentimes within anti-trafficking, there's, there's a, a fear of, of being honest about um, kind of the, the gray areas of the work that we, that we do. So for example, in our work with Invader, um, in my work with Invader, in terms of some of our intervention work that we participate in with um, sort of police operations alongside local law enforcement, our teams have been involved in assisting survivors of anti-trafficking in conjunction with law enforcement officers for the last few years here in Thailand. And one thing that we've been really honest with our donors is that this kind of area of weakness for us as an organization is in the aftercare piece where um, after we've, after we've um, sort of contributed and assisted with the initial police operations to um, basically assist the survivors or the victims that are being um, trafficked in, in various situations. So whether that's in a brothel, whether that's in a karaoke bar, in a restaurant where they're being forced to work primarily in um, forced prostitution and sex trafficking. After we've assisted them, I think the, the, the kind of question for us as an organization is, how do we then assist them in the long term with reintegration so that once they return to their home communities, they aren't, A, like, um, prone to re-trafficking, um, and B, that they actually are able to go home and live happy, healthy lives where they've been, um, like, basically helped reintegrate and restored into their communities. And so this is an area for our donors that they often ask us, how do you know that the survivors that you're assisting once they go home, that they um, are able, like that they're actually better off, right? And that's an, mm -hmm. a really important question, I think, in the anti-trafficking sector is in the long term, how do, like, how are we helping survivors in this aftercare piece that we've quote unquote rescued, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us, that's something that we're working on right now in facilitating cross-border networks with all the different countries surrounding Thailand. Um, we're working with aftercare shelters in countries that are neighboring countries to Thailand so that we can have social workers who are following up on survivors in their home communities once those survivors have reintegrated back into their home communities. But but it's not the ultimate, I mean, it's, it's not a fail-safe system, right? The story that we could tell is, oh, we, you know, quote unquote, rescued these survivors and sent them home and now they're happy back in their villages. No, we assisted them. They went through the government aftercare process. Our social worker did a, you know, kind of a, um, a assessment to see, you know, can are is home safe for them to go back to? They've been reintegrated back into their home communities, and I think ultimately, you know, there's still a question mark on: are is that the best? Was that the best for them? You know, are mm -hmm. they um, are they going to be re-trafficked again? You know, by the very nature of living in a developing country, um, people who are living in situations of poverty are at risk to, to being, you know, um, approached by traffickers. And so I think for us being able to tell that story to our donors kind of 
created, I would say, again, going back to this idea of trust between our donors and us and us being able to say, here's the pitfalls and here's the gray areas that we see in our work. Here's what we're doing to attempt to address this. Um, but that there isn't necessarily kind of this sort of, um, yeah, silver bullet answer to, to this issue, especially for those, um, survivors that are living in, in, in situations that are highly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say it really has to do with honesty with, with the people that we're, that we're communicating with. Yeah. Well, I want, I would love to hear an example of as you've been, as fundraising has turned more digital and the levels of risk for individuals whose stories are being told, particularly in, in trafficking sectors is a lot higher, right? When it's digital, it can't be removed. It can be passed along quickly. Yeah. How, what lessons have you learned? Have you all um, faced any challenges or even failed at doing this correctly over the time, like examples you can give and then maybe even a success story of where you did it right. And you were able to, you know, meet your agenda as a nonprofit, also be able to engage your fundraiser and respect and dignify your, your people as well. Yeah. That's, that's definitely been a learning curve for, for us in the last few years, Heidi, I would say for, for us as an organization, we, in the last couple of years have developed media guidelines and communication guidelines for us internally as an organization, but also externally for those that we have um, who come and visit our organization in terms of whether they're donors or whether they are just individuals that we're interacting with that come into contact with our work. And really, we develop these guidelines specifically for the reasons that you just stated, recognizing that at the click of a button, a story that's told, you know, in New Zealand, for example, where a lot of our donor base comes from, is ultimately not only being shared in New Zealand, it's being shared globally, right? We live mm-hmm. in a, a very connected world. And so in terms of all of our external communication and internal communication, for that matter, we have developed these guidelines to make sure that our staff are communicating in a way that is honoring and has integrity to the survivors that we're working with. So that means removing all sensitive details of any of the cases that we're working on. It means um, never sharing specifics of any particular cases, um, never sharing specific names or details of locations of our cases. Mm -hmm. And so that's been something that I think we've learned actually from a few different kind of media um, media kind of uh, stories that we had in some of our the early the early days of our of our organization where um, some of our work was highlighted online that that probably shouldn't have been on online and and we didn't have control over that because we hadn't put in place really strict guidelines for what we would or wouldn't say to journalists or to to news agencies and so at this point we actually have put into place policies around who can say what to to different kind of media and 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 journalists in order to protect the cases and and stories of individuals that we're working with so that's been a huge learning curve for us and it's been something that we've developed over the last few years 
out of a place of recognizing that we needed to because of mistakes that have been made on like on our part as an organization. Hmm. What did that process look like of gathering your team together to create those guidelines, you know, for a nonprofit who might be listening, who it's an individual who is on board with these values, but might have others who are just entering into this fear. How do you collect people together to really charge forward Mm -hmm. with something like that? Mm. You know, we, we started Heidi with doing research into best practices around communications for anti-trafficking, but also communications with vulnerable people. And there, there, there was, there was some level of, of, of content out there, not to the extent that I think that initially I wish there were, there was, which actually was part of Freedom Collaborative putting together these guidelines ourselves as a community. But for my work with Invader, we, we did, we initially started looking at research, um, what was out there, what, what is best practice around some of these ideas of, of um, communications and then as a team, we sat down and said, okay, what is it that we are comfortable sharing? What is it that we don't believe is appropriate to share involving the cases that we're working on? Our investigations teams had really um, very thorough thoughts on, had really had very strong thoughts on what they were comfortable or not comfortable with any of our comms and marketing team sharing externally. And and they were very conservative, which I appreciated um, around their, their ideas on, you know, sort of the importance of making sure that what we share is sensitive and, um, and not communicated externally at a wider level. And so for us, I'd say we lean much more conservative now than we ever have before. And I think Mm -hmm. that there's challenges that come with that, but at the same time, I think that it actually, um, is important for us as an organization. Yeah. And with hiring independent storytellers, photographers, filmmakers, writers, or anyone mm-hmm. who might come along, what is the yeah. nonprofit's role in ensuring that those people who come on externally are abiding by the yeah. same value system? Oh my goodness. I have so much to say about this. <laughs> we, um, as Invader, actually one of our primary funders last year, um, took a took a trip here to Thailand, a, a media trip essentially to collect photos um, and stories to take back to their kind of home context in order to to fundraise on our behalf. So, with these with this external group and agency that came um, to Thailand to to basically do this storytelling, well, story collecting and 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 content collecting. We had a very thorough, robust <laughs> conversation, multiple conversations before they came around policies for putting together what we as Invader were comfortable with them photographing and what we were comfortable with them gathering. And it was a back and forth between kind of what they needed and what we were comfortable with giving them. Ultimately, we came to a middle ground that we were able to basically provide them with the kind of space that they they needed in terms of of photography that was compelling but that we believed was also dignifying to the individuals that we were assisting and so we it was but it was I would say it was it was a challenge and it was something that took a lot of time 
It took multiple Skypes with this entity. It took various drafts of a policy and guidelines before they came. And then while they were here for five days, it took constant communication on the ground while we, while they were here between our two different groups. So it was their photography team and media team and our comms um, and marketing team, myself and a partner of mine. Um, and it was a really honest conversation that we kept having, right? They were here for five days and we kept having just, you know, every morning we check in like, okay, so today we're doing this. How do we all feel about that? How are we going to make sure that in this context that we're, you know, um, you know, sort of honoring the communities that we're, that we're working in today. And so while that was, it took a lot of effort it was worth it in the end because what we got in the end was compelling photography that's beautiful and doesn't involve, it didn't actually involve any victims at all, which I mean is a policy just in general, but any um, individuals that were at all vulnerable, but just like compelling images that I think were really beautiful. And so that, but that was a, a good learning curve for us in terms of how to work well with external agencies, but it took a lot of time and effort. Mm. On both ends. I think they were pretty frustrated with us at times. Because <laughs> we just kept saying no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you reference the trafficking, anti-trafficking world being in its teenage years. If you were to envision uh, a young adult version of, yeah. of this sector and mm. the role that story is going to play as they enter yeah. into adulthood, what does it look like? Yeah. I love this question because I think it has to do with this idea of learning from our past. Hmm. And I think that as, as humans, because ultimately, right, those of us that are engaged in anti-trafficking work, we're a, a bunch of humans who operate under the umbrella of organizations, but ultimately we have these human experiences. And I think as humans, it's so important for us to look backwards and to look into our history to learn lessons from history in order to not replicate mistakes of our past. And that's a lot easier said than done, but mm -hmm. I think it's a really important thing for us as a community to commit ourselves to do. And so I think we have a lot of the good, the bad, the ugly from the last 10, 15 years that we can look back on and say, okay, here's as a community, what we did well, here's what we did really poorly. And how do we put in place mechanisms so that we don't repeat those mistakes in the future so that ultimately we can really grow as a community. 